Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the first Israel Policy Pod of 2022. If last year is anything to go by, it should be another unpredictable, consequential, and dare we say fateful year in Israel and Israel policy. Uh, But first, it's catch-up time. We took a break over the holidays, as I'm sure many of you have as well, and it's a good moment to take stock of where things stand as the new year gets going. To help us make sense of the last few weeks in Israeli politics, the state of play of the Bennett Lapid government, a very interesting meeting between Benny Gantz and Mahmoud Abbas, a rising Omicron wave, of course, and more, we have joining us today Tal Shalev, chief political correspondent for Walla News and a longtime friend of this podcast and Israel Policy Forum. Tal, welcome. Hi, Happy New Year. Happy 2022. Uh, Happy New Year to you as well, Tal. Uh, First question to you, any big New Year's resolutions on your end? My personal end, I have one really big New Year resolution and that's to wake up earlier in the mornings. And since I made that resolution, I've been constantly waking up like an hour and a half later than I'm supposed to. So I'm (laughs) I'm following up well on my own personal New Year resolution. It's off to a good start. Yeah. It's off to a good start. Uh, but thank you for joining us today to help us take stock of where things uh, are going in this new year. And I wanted to start off with a topic near and dear to your heart, internal Israeli politics and the Bennett Lapid government. Uh, I'm sure you may have been there, but you obviously heard, as many others may have heard. Uh, unusual thing happened in the Knesset yesterday. Uh, and yesterday, meeting Wednesday, we're recording this on Thursday, but during a parliamentary vote, the opposition started banging on the table, shouting shame, shame, shame in Hebrew at Prime Minister Bennett, who in turn got up, walked over to the opposition and started yelling at them uh, in a verbal altercation. I think that's the only way to describe it with the opposition, and he called them thugs and hypocrites. Knesset guards had to get involved and step between the two sides. So, Tal, have you ever seen any of that before? Well, I've definitely seen stuff like that, not in the Israeli parliament. It's a common, I Mm. think, sight in some of our neighbors' parliaments, such as Jordan or even Egypt. You're probably better than me on that, Nuri. But, um, yeah, it it was a difficult, it was a very unique, day, or I would say unprecedented day yesterday uh, at the Israeli parliament. Um, It's true. This is, I should say, an ongoing process, which is just deteriorating since, you know, the new government uh, was established in June. So we're half a year, a bit more than half a year into that. And the opposition and the coalition are you know, um, at loggerheads constantly. um, There's an ongoing fight inside the parliament, which is um, de facto paralyzing the Knesset. It's a fight about, you know, the seats on the Knesset committees and about the majorities in the Knesset committees. And essentially the opposition and the Likud, essentially they're boycotting most of the parliamentary work. And the only thing that they're actually doing is the filibusters and, uh, you know, using the filibuster um, tool, I would say, to the extent that hasn't been seen before, meaning that almost every bill that the coalition brings um, is uh, accompanied by hours, endless hours of speeches 
and votes on really irrelevant topics. It has nothing to do mm -hmm. with the, you know, with the legislation itself. It's just about the politics. And all of this is accompanied by a very, I would say, vocal and even violent, um, violent campaign. I mean, violent in the uh, lingual way mm -hmm. um, against Bennett, mainly against Bennett, but also against uh, his party members and specifically the party members who are considered the most right wing party members. So actually what happened yesterday was that the opposition was actually not shouting directly at Bennett, even though he's always, you know, at the center of their riots. But actually, they were directing their calls towards two of his party members uh, called Nir Orbach and Yom Tov Kalpon. Mm -hmm. um, and Bennett actually, or at least this is how he explains his, you know, what some people call a breakdown and other people just would call an outburst. Um, he explains it by the fact that he was actually protecting them and defending his party members who really um, are on on a daily basis, really are, are used to hearing these very horrible shouts from the opposition. Right. But yes, he reacted in a way that we've never seen any prime minister in the past react, especially not, you know, in our close memory since Netanyahu was many times he was heckled in the Knesset, but he was very, you know, cold and never overreacted. And he always kind of let it pass him by. Mm -hmm. And this was very rare to see like Bennett was essentially lose it um, in his uh, and kind of come back and answer back and actually answer the opposition. And in your opinion, do you think this is Bennett? feeling the pressure of certain kind of breakdown or was it calculated like uh, tactically to show that he's standing up to the opposition? He even at one point tried to engage Netanyahu and Netanyahu just kind of turned his back and walked away. I don't think it was planned. Um, I think it was, but I'm not sure it was a breakdown more like he kind of, you know, he just got so mad that he kind of had to, you know, he couldn't control himself. Hmm. Um, of course, I think he he saw it as some kind of gesture towards his party members. He saw it as an act of leadership in a way, but the optics of it were exactly the opposite. Um, it, it was also accompanied by some kind of, there was some kind of uh, exchange between him and Orit Struk, uh, which is uh, one of uh, the members of the uh, um, National Zionist Party, uh, Betalis Smotrich's party. Right, far right party. Uh, the far right party. She used to be an ally of Bennett. And she was, uh, um, she was, of course, criticizing Bennett. And she came over and called something towards him. And he answered, get out of my way. I couldn't translate. I mean, maybe you can translate it better so it sounds how rude it is. Kind of, he, he shouted to her, which is get out of my face. It, it's get out of my face. It's really not the manner of speaking we're used to, especially not minister. from a prime minister. And even in the Knesset, it's it's a real. So basically, we're seeing both sides. You know, the opposition are going very low, but also Bennett going very low. And the long term effects of this, I I'm afraid. Are, uh, it's, it goes beyond Bennett and the Likud or Bennett and Netanyahu. It's just that this, uh, you know, this institute, the parliament, which is supposed to be, you know, 
a place that sets an example <laughs> is really just turning into exactly the opposite. I think uh, that example, that ship has sailed a long time ago in terms of the Knesset uh, and the Israeli public. Um, yeah, so it's, of course, it's a long time. Yeah, it's it's not something that started yesterday. Um, the Knesset has been weakened constantly, is being weakened constantly by various moves. By the way, it doesn't really matter um, which coalition it is. We see that the coalitions and the governments in Israel are very, very forceful and, and they're very, very um, aggressive mm-hmm. in the way they treat the Knesset. And that's part of the picture. But the other part is that, you know, the way the, 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 the culture of speaking, you know, it, we're in Israel. It's not as if we're polite to begin <laughs> with. Right. Um, but really, I think that both sides, it's not only Bennett, by the way, if you listen to Gidon Sal, who is the justice minister of uh, Israel today, and the way he speaks about his ex-friends in the Likud, the way he describes them, the way he, he, the way he looks when he talks about them, the, the, the emotions that are put into the political debate, the, this is not how a political debate should be uh, should should be handled, I think, um, on both sides. And I think that this kind of shows that, the, us, you know, some people thought that, you know, we were in a political crisis and now there's a new government and the crisis is over. That's that's not true. The crisis is definitely still here and it's about polarization and it's about um, how low uh, the debate and the discussion is turning into and how and how far away it is really how about what really matters to the Israeli public. And in that respect, it just creates this growing, I'm afraid this could create, you know, a growing depth, a growing um, gap between what's important for the Israeli public and what these people are dealing with. It really doesn't matter which side you are in the party, which side you are in the map to understand that they're they're stuck in this fight between yes, Bibi and not Bibi and yes, Bennett and not Bennett. And, and they're not really talking, talking, about other important things that are much more important. We should mention, just for the sake of balance, uh, the the language used by the opposition, led by Netanyahu and Likud, since day one of this new government towards Bennett has been one of uh, delegitimization. They don't call for him sure, a, for a sure. legitimate and, prime minister, that he stole votes, uh, and on and on. For sure. Um, and I think that if we would want to go back to where this fight began, um, for sure, the opposition and Netanyahu are the ones who ignited it with their treatment of the government. Um, that being said, um, the coalition, it's, and, and, and I want to say you can't really compare the way um, the, the opposition are treating Bennett to anything else. Because really, it's really like every time he enters the Knesset plenum, they start shouting at him, liar and traitor and uh, shame on right. you. And really, this is an impossible, you know, it does create a lot of empathy towards Bennett. And really, this is not the way to handle, you know, um, how, how we want or how we expect our political debate to be handled. That being said, the coalition itself, we should, it, it really has a very slight majority, right? Mm-hmm. It has only one seat in the Knesset. One seat majority. That means that a very slim majority. And that means um, that that they are very, very tight, and they're also being very forceful in the way they are treating the Knesset. For example, this week, 
um, the coalition uh, decided to imply a special rules, um, a special clause in the Knesset, you know, rules that allows them to limit the time of, to limit filibusters. But this is a rule that essentially is used only in very, very rare cases and specific cases. And the legal uh, advisor of the Knesset tells the coalition, listen, you're overdoing it. You're not supposed to be using this clause and now. And they used it anyway. So in a way, they have an, imp they have an impossible opposition but it's not leading, but, but you know, but the reaction um, is not leading anywhere positive. And at the end of the day, just to say this whole mess, there's just a feeling that there's no grown up, right? No responsible grown up who can call both sides and say, let's try and get things, you know, back to normal. There isn't one, um, not Bennett or Lapid, but not also inside the Knesset, just to talk about, you know, the regular parliamentary work. Mm. Um, it's not going on because the Knesset speaker is also not a strong figure. Uh, so claims of uh, stolen votes, illegitimate prime ministers, filibusters, uh, deadlocked parliament, all this should sound familiar to some of our listeners uh, across the seas. Uh on the issues that actually matter, right, and the functioning of this government, uh, this new government now just over six months in power. Um, we all know they passed a budget in November. That was a big step, uh, both in terms of economic certainty, but as we know, political stability for, for the coalition. Uh, but it seems to me that since that budget passed, more and more, almost every week, we see these kind of internal contradictions within the coalition actually popping up, right? Uh, you have the Omer Bar-Lev, the internal security minister, fighting with uh, the settlers and the Israeli right. You have today, Thursday, uh, deputy economic minister from the left-wing merits party, Yair Golan, touching off a firestorm about comments he made about uh, a certain settlement outpost in the West Bank. You have uh, the Islamist uh, Ram party fighting with Ayelet Shaked. Uh, you have Benny Gantz blasting even ministers within the coalition that were criticizing him for his meeting with the Mahmoud Abbas last week. Uh, all of that taken together, are you, how do you assess the the state of the bennett Lapid coalition now just over six months in? Well, everything you described is right. They, there is, there's like 24 hours, every 24 hours, there's a new scandal in the coalition. And almost one of the Knesset members told me a few weeks ago that almost every week there's a point where they're sure that it's all breaking apart. And yes, um, as can be expected in such a, you know, um, heterogenic uh, coalition, mm -hmm. they fight on almost everything. And uh, let's say the, the neither sides are making it easier for the other to live together. But at the end of the day, they do live together. Right. There's one of the one of the benefits of being in such a narrow coalition of only 61 seats is that nobody really has the privilege to really take create any real crisis, because it's clear that any real crisis could actually bring the government down. Mm. So I think that it's quite safe now regarding its achievements. It, you're right that their main achievement has been the budget. And after the budget. They're all trying to do stuff, but they're mostly fighting about it. Of course, we have the Omicron, which we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. But besides the Omicron, it's kind of 
after the budget, a lot of ministers are putting out their plans. And then another minister from the other side or from a you know different party comes and says, wait, wait, this isn't going to be the plan. And nothing is really moving forward. I would say besides one place where I think this is where this, I think at least one of one of the places where this coalition can actually make a change and can actually promote things, and that is regarding um, religion and state. Mm. Um, inside the uh, um, religion ministry, we have Matan Kahana, uh, who is the right-wing minister from Bennett's party. Right. Um, he's a national religious moderate, though, Masoti, relatively, you know, modern. He's an ex a pilot, so he definitely, you know, grew up around secular people most of his life, um, and he's been promoting a few reforms, uh, both in the um, kosher certificates and now in conversions, um, and he's promoting them, you know, with Israel Beitenu, and of course, angering um, the whole ultra-Orthodox uh, establishment and the rabbinate altogether, like this is one of the main I would say, topics mm -hmm. going on these days. And I think that perhaps that is where this uh, coalition could actually use this majority, you know, to, to kind of clean, or I would say not necessarily clean, but... Um, reform. Um, play out or re reform or refresh some of the establishments and institutes that have been so for so many years under total ultra-Orthodox control. And Dafka, like you have this coalition, which has these ultra secular people like Israel Beitenu, right? And Lieberman's party. Mm -hmm. And you have the national religious and they're creating an alliance uh, which could actually, you know, bring to some change um, in, the, uh, in, in the relationship between these institutions and the public. Um, that being said, I do think that there might be a disappointment for American Jews from this government because because mm. I do think that um, if there were, I'm not sure that X. Well, I'm not. I'll, I'll I'll be skeptical. I'll just say I'm not sure, and I'll be delicate. I'm not sure that um, this government can make any significant changes that have to do with the uh, status or um, the status of reforms and conservative Jews in Israel. Um, Kahana is trying not to touch that. Um, and of course that is angering the more liberal parts and the more progressive parts of the coalition. Um, but at large, I do think that this is one of the places that this government, one of the you know arenas that this government is going to, might be able to uh, implement the change. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, elections have consequences, and the ultra-Orthodox parties, the Haredi parties that were mainstays of coalition governments going back, I think, 30, 40 years, uh, are no longer in power. And so now the, the path is clear for the religious nationalists uh, like Kahana and Yamina to join forces with the uh, secular parties like Lieberman Vissel Beitenu and Meretz and actually reform uh, or try to reform these issues of religion and state. Uh, very interesting. And it's actually flown under the radar. Uh, so it's uh, a topic worth worth keeping in mind. So to sum up, you, you don't get too bent out of shape uh, about every daily headline between this minister fighting with that minister and the latest outrage. You think that while there are disagreements, uh, it doesn't mean that the coalition will fall tomorrow or next week. 
Is that fair to say? At large, yes. Though I do take into account that the coalition can fall every day because coalitions fall because of stupid things. Mm. And there are a lot of stupid things around, right? <laughs> so uh, what, are you trying, true, what are you trying to say about Israeli politics, Tal? That it's not necessary. Well, you know, these the, the fights, many of them, you know, they're about tweets. They're about, not really about policy, but let's put that aside. And just to say, uh, when, a lot of these dynamics also turn into personal dynamics. Mm. Um, we, we see the same fights time and again. It's not like new fights. It's Omer Balev who is now, you know, um, is now been labeled as problematic from the right wing point of view. Um, it's Ayelet Shaked who is problematic from the left wing point of view, and all of these personal fights and arguments, essentially, they you know they they bring in bad blood, and bad blood is not good for coalitions mm-hmm. um, because it's not a good it's not it's better to not to have bad blood part of your recipe, but and. I don't think there's any interest for anyone to bring the government down. I just say, I'm just saying, you know, stranger things have happened than a coalition falling, you know, so things could, um, one day we can wake up with some statement of Yair Golan or someone else that will be too much for Yamina to candle or to cope with. Um, And that could happen. Right. Bad blood uh, isn't great for coalitions, but it is good for headlines. And maybe a lot of this is just, each minister and each party trying to uh, make make a splash and curry favor with their respective base to show that they're they're standing up for their own ideologies. Shouldn't discount that, I don't think. Well, so, so a politicians are politicians, and yeah, that's what they're doing. Everyone is trying to you know make a muscle um, and show their muscles to their electorates. And after the budget, they have like the room to do so without being so afraid that everything they do can bring down the government. Um, but also, there's something to be said about the structure of this government, right? It's built out of a lot of small parties. Uh, none of them are, necess- besides Yeshatid, who is like double the size of all of the other parties, mm-hmm. all of the players are essentially at the same level of power, have the same amount of power, including the prime minister. So there's not really one person who comes, you know, when you have a strong prime minister from the largest party, then when he says something, then, you know, then I think it's easier for him to implement his policy. And Bennett, it's, it, it doesn't have to do with Bennett as a personality. It's more about the structure of this weird government. Is when you have a weak prime minister and all of his partners around him, you know, also feel don't are not afraid of him or they don't feel his, you know, uh, governance in a way, mm-hmm. then uh, then it's easier for things to be chaotic. Right. Uh, there's no one overarching dominant figure keeping everybody in line. And there are a lot of dominant figures, but each one of them has a different interest, right? So, um, mm-hmm. so that's one of the. So, so that's why it looks like this. At large, look, it's working. I can't say. You know, they have these small fights, but at the end of the day, uh, the government is working. I think that the problem is much more the Knesset. There's also part of the problem is that. Um, this government has implemented what is called a Norwegian bill, meaning that most of the government ministers have resigned from the Knesset and other MKs have um, entered the Knesset instead of them, meaning mm-hmm. that most of the government, uh, most of the government ministers, they're not in the Knesset at all. They don't feel how it is to be under a 61 seat coalition. And they don't also have to pay most of the ideological prices that they're 
the, the MKs have to really vote some of them sometimes against what they really believe in, right? Um, and that's also part of the part of the chaos. Um, but at large, it's working. So the things that I'm describing, um, they 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 seem like they're very malfunctional. But I'm not sure that that's how necessarily the average uh, um, Israeli feels about the way things are happening. Okay, that's reassuring. Uh, moving on to uh, a formidable personality within the government, uh, who has turned out to be a formidable personality within the government, uh, Benny Gantz, the defense minister. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. He met uh, last week with Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president. Uh, Gantz hosted him at his home in Rosh Ha'ayin, in central Mm -hmm. Israel. Uh, Also, on Wednesday this week, uh, Gantz flew to Jordan and he met with King Abdullah. I'm interested in your take as a political correspondent. How do you how should we understand Gantz's increasing profile on the Palestinian issue, on various security issues like Jordan, like the Iran deal? Uh, is this what we should have expected when this government was formed, i.e. Benny Gantz as defense minister playing this this rather influential role, or is this come as a surprise to you that he's actually taken on all these various portfolios? Well, first of all, I want to say that I think Benny Gantz probably is one of the people who's um, earning the most and making the most out of this government. By the way, without necessarily fighting uh, with his uh, comrades, right? Uh, But really kind of finding his place and really reinventing himself. He's really rehabilitating himself. I mean, if you think where Benny Gantz was exactly a year ago, he was, you know, just he just survived the government with Netanyahu. He was battered. He hardly passed the um, he he hardly passed in the polls. He was one of the most despised people right. in Israel. And this government has enabled him the opportunity to rebrand himself and to focus on the defense ministry in the large aspect of the word. Meaning, you know, the defense ministry, essentially it can be, you can be very, very dominant. We've, we've seen very dominant uh, defense ministers in the past. For instance, like just like in the short memory, Ehud Barak was a very, very dominant defense minister in BB's first uh, in the in the BB government term in 2009 and two thir- till 2013, right. um, uh, he really played a significant role. Those that came after him were less dominant, but I think that uh, Benny Gantz understood the you know this horizon of opportunities that he has in the office, which can touch on so much more than defense. And of course, this is a political strategy. This isn't only about. Uh, Benny Gantz really do it, making moves that are he thinks are essential for Israel's security and defense. I mean, but also essential for his own are, political strategy. Exactly. There are also. I'm not. Um, that being said, yes, it's important that he meets with Abbas, and it's important that he met with uh, um, King Abdallah. By the way, he met both of them twice already, and right. he also got a photo from the recent Abdallah meeting which was a rarity. Of course, Netanyahu almost never got a photo in the past few years from King Abdallah. And Gantz gets a photo with King Abdallah when Bennett and Lapid didn't get a photo with King mm-hmm. Abdallah. So, of course, 
um, that gives him a few points. But he's building himself um, as a as a statesman and B as a you know as as a as a relative grown up. He's also relatively older than most of the people in this government, um, and um, it's kind of we invent themselves as the new Rabin. Now this is bad news, especially for Merav Michaeli, mm, labor labor party yeah, chair. Especially meeting with Bas, I gotta give it to Benny Gantz. The fact that he invited him to his house, I mean, that was really, um, just politically wise, you could hear the immediate change of tone from people really that uh, in the last, that really just a year ago were swearing by him, right? And were just wanted him to, they, they were saying he should go home, lech. They should, um, they actually told Gantz that he should leave politics, that he wasn't going exactly. to, his party wasn't going to make it into the next Knesset that he should just uh, exactly. retire. Exactly. So I think that what Gantz is doing, he's taking his portfolio and he's, you know, expanding the limits of his portfolio as much as he can. I'm not sure how much, you know, Bennett is satisfied with it. I'm sure, for I'm definitely <laughs> sure that Lapid doesn't necessarily like it, but Lapid is also in kind of a, you know, he's in a catch because he cannot fight with Gantz because he needs Gantz to move for, be on good terms with him in order for Gantz not to bring down the government before Lapid's rotation. So I think that Gantz is really in the best place. He's probably in the best place he's been since he's entered politics in a way. Right. Um, because he, I, and, and you can see that he's feeling much more comfortable. And we should say a number of things. Number one, Gantz uh, was the only holdover from the previous government. He remained, mm-hmm. he remained defense minister. Uh, obviously, Gantz was a former IDF chief of staff, so he has uh, the credibility and the experience in terms of defense issues. Uh, and, and yeah, he, he's maneuvering quite, uh, quite cleverly uh, in terms of what the defense ministry is doing and what he's doing as defense minister. Uh, and, and yes, uh, they need him. Lapid especially needs him uh, if Lapid wants to be prime minister uh, next next year, 2023. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, another question about the Gantz Mahmoud Abbas meeting. Uh, I found it interesting that uh, I think it was last Friday, Prime Minister Bennett gave a press conference about Corona, and he was actually asked about the Gantz Abbas meeting, and Bennett said he Gantz told him about the meeting ahead of time, so i.e. Bennett approved it. He allowed it to go ahead. Uh, and then Bennett said something more interesting. He said, look, uh, in terms of stability in the West Bank, meetings like this with the Palestinian leader, with the Palestinian president, uh, is part of the toolkit in terms of ensuring stability in the West Bank. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is coming from Bennett, uh, no fan of the Palestinians. Bennett, obviously, pro-settler leader. Uh, what did you make of of this comment? I thought it kind of flew under the radar, but but I found it quite illuminating in terms of uh, maybe a grown-up Bennett acknowledging reality uh, on the ground in the West Bank. Well, I think that Bennett is in the midst of a process, and that is uh, a centerization process. Of, um, and not, I don't only think this, I also know this, that he's kind of looking for new audiences, right? So part of his new audience is somewhere definitely in the center compared to where his old audience was. And in that respect, I think that um, it's mostly um, that comment that Bennett said is mostly a reflection of his attempt 
you know, to, to move from the sidelines of the right much more to the center. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, I think that it's in a, look, there are a lot of things that, of course, there's this saying in Israel, meaning things that you see from here, you see differently from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that uh, um, there's probably also much more to this meeting that we don't know about, right? So um, I think that at the end of the day, A, Bennett is too, is, is also politically trying to find a new audience, but B, also, you know, also trying to be statement-like, right? He can't have Benny Gantz meeting Abu Mazen and him not explaining what the importance is it of, right? The importance of it. Right. He's... He's now sitting in the prime minister's chair, Benedis, and so he, whether he wants to or not, has to uh, behave like a statesman and uh, explain. Exactly, and he's like not Bennett. You know, the opposition Bennett, of course, would be attacking Gantz very harshly mm-hmm. for any meeting with Benny Gantz, with Abu Mazen. But it's we're not with opposition Bennett anymore. Right, uh, and it is interesting that Gantz and Abbas, uh, obviously, they met in Gantz's home inside Israel. And for Mahmoud Abbas, to my mind, Abbas didn't have to go there himself. Uh, and yet Abbas chose to go physically to Gantz's home. Uh, it was it was covered. It wasn't hidden. Uh, you know, there were certain gestures in terms of work permits and uh, family reunification, Palestinian IDs that were that were approved coming out of this meeting, which is something the Palestinians have been long wanting. Uh, but a lower level Palestinian official could have could have cut that deal with a lower level Israeli official. Uh, in other words, Abbas wanted that meeting as well. And I think that also yeah. is, is an important point to make. Definitely. I think that if there's some, I think that there are a lot, you know, this government calls itself a change government. And a lot of the things are very similar to Netanyahu. But if we actually take what's going on between Gantz and Abu Mazen, this might be the most essential change that we've seen in the government, because mm. of course these are meetings that we couldn't imagine at the in the previous government at this point, and of course I think that also Gantz or this government enjoys, you know, the where the the fact that they're the not BB government also plays for them with the Palestinians because Abbas, after years, you know, boycotting from his side as well the Netanyahu government. The fact that there's a change, he he also has stakes and interests in this government surviving, right. and the fact and the way for him to show that this is a different government to his people, right, um, is by meeting Gantz and by having con- a dialogue and by having a connection. And let's also remember, and you're you're a better expert than me on the, than me on this, that Abbas also has internal politics, and you know in the past. What deferred between him and Hamas was the fact that they had a, that there was a constructive dialogue with the Israelis. He can't leave that, right. um, and he's renewing this. And this is, of course, also also essential for what's going on in Gaza. So I think that part of the you know that part of um, Gantz's incentive to strengthening the relationship with the PA and with Abbas, it also has to do with you know reversing the policy of Netanyahu of uh, weakening the PA and strengthening the Hamas. I agree. I think, uh, if anything, that's a huge change from the previous Netanyahu governments, plural, uh, that there is a real 
effort. I don't think they've they've gotten all the way there yet, but a real effort and intention on the part of the new Israeli government via Benny Gantz to strengthen the Palestinian Authority and to at least not wholly uh, strengthen Hamas uh, in turn. Which, which Bibi, Bibi uh, I mean, there's no other way to put it. He, he was negotiating with Hamas while isolating Mahmoud Abbas. Mm-hmm. And it should have arguably been, uh, been the reverse. Uh, it'll be interesting. And, and we should also say on the last point on, mm-hmm. on this uh, Benny Gantz, Mahmoud Abbas meeting issue is that it's not just Abbas who's uh, using or trying to leverage this new Israeli government. It's also King Abdullah in Jordan. It's also to some extent the Biden administration in Washington that uh, there is a, this at least a sense of a new, uh, a fresher air coming out of Jerusalem and maybe a different vibe than what was previously uh, coming out of Jerusalem under Netanyahu. No, it's, it's also just to add on that, um, it's, I think it's refreshing for anyone dealing with Israel's foreign policy that after years of the foreign, everything that had to do with essential strategic affairs was um, centralized uh, in the prime minister's office. Mm-hmm. And now we have a government which is kind of decentralizing the, the, the foreign affairs. You have various actors and various players you can be in touch with. You have Gantz and you have Lapid and you have Bennett. And I think that like, if I imagine how it looks in the State Department, it's easier for them to have just, you know, just Netanyahu to talk to. And not only that, that Gantz and Lapid are actually really influential inside the government. And there are a lot of things that defense minister and the foreign minister can do by themselves. Um, so I think um, that that is really, yeah, that's probably the place where you feel the change most, where the change actually reflects dramatically. Right. Uh, last issue in terms of the new Israeli government and policy, we would be remiss if we didn't touch on maybe the biggest issue happening right now in Israel, uh, which is the Omicron wave, which has really I think, begun in earnest over the past week. Uh, case numbers are, are rising exponentially, like everywhere else in the world. Um, more than more than, let's say, Gaza or Iran or the Palestinian issue or what's happening in the Knesset. This is what's really uh, preoccupying the Israeli public right now. Uh, Obviously, we're not health experts. We're not doctors. But in terms of the politics behind the new government's response to this uh, latest COVID wave, uh, how would you assess how they're handling it, Tal? Hmm. Um, It's a good question, right? It's a good question. I'm not, I, 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 I'm going to refrain from judgment now because I'm not sure yet. Right. Um, I gotta say, um, up until the Omicron arrived, uh, Bennett was good. Like the Delta was handled very well. And that was the, most of the, pub, um, most of the public opinion, um, were, was positive around this. Um, you know, the booster, he had a very, yeah, the first booster operation, which went really well. Um, but I think that the Omicron, he kind of lost his mojo mm. in a way. Um, it started out, I think, I think you know, he he started out very, very concerned about the Omicron and he um, had this first uh, press conference, which we can now say was a hysterical press conference, uh, in which he essentially didn't do anything, but he kind of recommended Israelis not to go abroad. This was just the beginning of the uh, outbreak. And he, four days later, his wife 
went to a vacation in the Maldives. And I think that in a way that kind of uh, put, you know, it pushed him out of sync uh, in many ways in the way he's been handling this. Um, We've also seen that he's, he's been finding it very difficult to implement his policy. To start out with, um, finance minister Avigdor Lieberman, he kind of announced just kind of unilaterally when this government was established and again now that um, he's going to change the previous government's policy of, you know, giving out special budgets to compensate businesses uh, that are being locked down or closed down or are on their limits. Mm-hmm. And the minute Lieberman said that, he just said, he put down a veto. That meant that there's no way that Bennett could impose a lockdown or put any limitations on businesses because he just doesn't have the money to compensate them. Um, And so Bennett, in a way, was very much, so so that kind of, um, they of course say that this is part of a policy for the policies to keep the economic, to keep the markets open, to keep the economics open. Um, but but the fact is that um, Bennett wanted to do a lot of steps and he was stopped because of uh, Lieberman in most cases and uh, other ministers in other cases. He also has a problem um, with his um, education minister, Ifat Shasha Biton. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not clear how constructive Shasha Biton is to um, the vaccination, the, the vaccination going on inside the schools and vaccinating the youngsters, the children. Um, and this week, it's like after there have been many weeks of discussions, suddenly, like, you know, the Omicron is here and it's clear that we're in very high rates of infection. And this week, kind of like after weeks that they've been confusing the public with different directions and directives, this week they kind of, there's new directives on anything. And essentially they're saying, we're opening up the country, do whatever you want. We have nothing to do in face of the Omicron. Um, And I think that the public is confused. You hear parents confused. Um, and frustrated because they don't, you hear a lot of people frustrated, but to say that I don't see any other country that is, you know, handling this much better than Israel, right? I mean, everyone's a mess. This pandemic is a mess. Yes. Um, And it was, and uh, and I think they're doing their best. Um, And I hope that really, you know, that the way that this seems now, it seems like that here also in Israel, there haven't been um, high morta- higher mortality rates or the, um, the, the Omicron has not led to, you know, um, difficult cases. So if that stays the same, then they'll be okay. And if that changes, then yes, Bennett could be severely hurt by or damaged by, uh, by this uh, variant as well. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Uh, as somebody who uh, covers the Israeli COVID response, just as a journalist, uh, I probably couldn't tell you what the latest regulations are in terms of how to get uh, a test, whether you need to get a test, if you catch uh, COVID, how many days quarantine do you need? I And I, I get paid to follow these things. So I'm sure the rest of the public is is quite confused as well, which is uh, not a great sign for for the Bennett government. Uh, but on the flip side, like you said, uh, no other country is, is, is able to handle this massive Omicron wave, you know, very effectively. And probably in terms of 
public opinion here in Israel. I think keeping the economy open and basically putting it in the hands of every citizen, uh, that's probably what the what the public wants because uh, they don't they definitely don't want another lockdown. So exactly. Uh, you hear a lot of complaints from people about the lines there have been huge lines, you know, out of the testing and out of the vaccinations. And now there aren't enough tests. There are a lot of complaints. But at the end of the day, you know, um, if you think about the alternative and that is a lockdown, then I think everyone understands that this is better. Um, this is a better situation. And hopefully we're on our way out of it. And the, the worst part is behind us. Uh, from your mouth to God's cool. ears. Uh, final question, Tal. And I have to ask it because you are our official in-house BB whisperer. Mm. Uh, the internal state of play within the Likud party and the internal state of play within Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, so in recent weeks, we've seen an effort by Netanyahu to uh, to purge these certain elements within the party, kind of the what they're called, the new, new Likudnikim activists. Uh, there's efforts even from within the Likud to pass a law uh, directly targeting Nir Barkat, the former mayor of Jerusalem, who's uh, a Likud official, uh, from from allowing him to to use his own very ample sources of funding uh, for his own future campaigns. Uh, you've had new challengers from within the Likud, like uh, Yuli Edelstein, the former health minister and former Knesset speaker, uh, say openly that he's going to to challenge for the Likud leadership in the next primaries. So what do you make of the rumblings, so to speak, inside the Likud these days? Um, a, I think that uh, the first and most important thing that we can learn from Netanyahu and from what Netanyahu is doing and from his battle against the new Likudniks and against Bakat and against Israel Katz is that he's not going anywhere at the moment. You know, in the past mm. few weeks, um, months at large. There've been, there's been constant speculation that Netanyahu is contemplating retirement. And um, I can say that he has been contemplating retirement, uh, but it seems like he decided not to retire at the moment. And we can see that because he's fighting his political rivals inside his party as if he's like, if it was his first day on the job um, with a lot of energy um, and very much into it, right? He's into the fight. And this is, A, because Netanyahu is Netanyahu. He always has to have an enemy. Um, that helps us, um, that, that we saw that as a prime minister. Um, and we see that as a, as a politician as well. And by him rallying against the new Likudniks or against the Salkats or Nirbalkats, he's creating, he's kind of bringing his supporters behind him inside the Likud and kind of bolstering his own camp and his own backing. Mm -hmm. That being said, of course, um, leaving um, the government and losing power after 12 years is a process in the Likud. And during that process, you can see um, things that we haven't seen before. For instance, uh, we can see that people inside the Likud sometimes ignore Netanyahu. He's not necessarily as strong as he wanted to. He doesn't necessarily get whatever he wants to. People are speaking up to him a bit more. Mm. Um, but I think that um, some, definitely inside the government, inside the Bennett-Lapid coalition, people thought that losing power would lead 
to Bibi losing his seat in the Likud. And it definitely doesn't seem that way at the moment. He seems very intent on um, consolidating his power inside the Likud. He's uh, trying to uh, bring, um, to, to hold early primaries for his job, um, even though uh, officially the the fight, um, the, the elections for the head of the Likud, the chair of the Likud, they're held, the elections are held before the next election. Netanyahu wants to bring, to hold the right. elections now in the next year or so, which means that he's really not going anywhere. Um, we should note um, two other people, two of other, two just, this is also a big thing in Israeli politics, kind of on the sidelines, but it's important. And it's also important for Netanyahu. Aryeh Deri, um, the Shas mm. leader, reached the plea bargain uh, with the uh, justice ministry. And uh, he's supposed to quit and resign the Knesset um, in the upcoming weeks. Um, and Litzman, Yaakov Litzman, the head of the Yadut uh, Torah uh, party, the head of Aguda, Aguda Tisrael, he also has announced, he also is going to be indicted, but he has already <laughs> announced that he's going to uh, retire at the end of this Knesset anyway. Um, now, this is uh, both uh, two people that were also indicted uh, close to when Netanyahu was indicted, um, a bit older than Netanyahu, but generally much closer to his age than most of the members of the Knesset. And they're leaving in similar, I would say, you know, in similar consequences than the one, than those that Netanyahu are in similar, different, but still similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is, I think, it, A, it's going to have an impact, of course, on um, the religion, on the Haredi politics. We're going to see a change of, you know, a generational change, essentially, both in, eventually, both in Shas and both in uh, um, Yadut Torah. But this also, I think, will impact Netanyahu and the way he can uh, handle the opposition. Yeah, he's losing two very close allies that Mm -hmm. always, no matter what, uh, stuck by him. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we'll see whether the the new heads of those two Haredi parties uh, take the same tack. It'll be it'll be interesting. But you're saying Netanyahu is in it at least for the coming year or two. He's not going anywhere. Again, never say never. Um, There are people very close to Netanyahu who have advised him to retire. I think mostly because of the money, uh, which is legitimate, right? Because uh, the assumption is that, uh, you know, Netanyahu now, he earns something like 40,000 shekel bruto a month. Uh, If he uh, retires, then he can uh, go on, uh, he can write many books, he can go on many tours, he can have lectures, he can sit on, you know, um, directorates of big uh, companies, big global companies. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people around us now were telling him, why do you need to stay here in the opposition? Um, and some people were even proposing to him if to retire and to see if that would change anything, you know, um, to retire until the next election and to see if that changes anything in the trial. It seems that at the moment Netanyahu decided not to live, not to listen to all of this advice. Um, but you know that can change. At the moment, he seems very vital and very, very, very adamant about being the leader of the opposition and about uh, um, you know continuing to hang on to the Likud and to his seat. Right. Uh, 
remains to be seen how the Netanyahu story uh, ends up, at least in the medium term. Uh, Tal, before we finish, uh, our segment Curation Corner uh, is coming back. As I've said before, there is a lot of content out there, uh, whether articles, books, movies, etc. And what we try to do every episode is make sense of it for you and to give our recommendations for you to check out. Uh, I'll go first, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. My pick uh, this week is a recent piece in The New Yorker magazine titled the Looming Threat of a Nuclear Crisis with Iran by Robin Wright. Uh, this is a great deep dive, a long read into the potential conflict between the Biden administration and Israel uh, with Iran over its accelerating nuclear program. Uh, there's a lot of really good nuggets and background on on how we got here, the evolution of this crisis, uh, including interviews with several major key players from the U.S., Israel, and Iran, uh, and also looking ahead, what may happen, may happen, Uh, if the talks right now in Vienna fail, uh, i.e. potentially a military conflict with Iran that, uh, according to Robin Wright, is better armed and more hardline than at any point since the creation of the Islamic Republic. So I don't know if it makes for happy reading in this new year, but I would argue important reading since uh, the deadline for these talks uh, are believed to be coming up at the end of January or early February. So that's uh, by way of my recommendation. Tal, what do you have for us? Well, I'm going to recommend, uh, you know, with the book that has been the talk of the month here in Israel, uh, and that is uh, um, Trump's piece by uh, our mutual friend and colleague, Barak Ravid. Mm, um, yep. I got us. Um, I think that the last time I was on your show, I recommended on your podcast, I recommended Amit Segal's book. Yeah. So I would, yeah. So this is uh, in a way, I, not a sequel, but um, it's a, an equivalent to that book. You know, two um, young journalists, uh, um, very popular journalists, who have really both written books um, who just aid just to see like the PR buzz about them and how mm-hmm. viral they became is amazing. Um, specifically, this book by Barack Ravid, I, I found it, you know, um, it, this of course describes the background and the procedures and the communications uh, and the, the the back scenes of the Abraham Accords and of the uh, Trump administration, uh, Netanyahu uh, relationship. Of course, the biggest headline was uh, published um, worldwide with uh, the interview that Trump gave uh, to Barack, which in which he cursed Netanyahu and we don't have to, uh, <laughs> we don't have to use the Delicately. same effort. Definitely, yes, he said F him, uh, Trump, um, with regard to BB. Exactly. But there are uh, a lot of good, great other stories like this in the book. And even for me personally, you know, I covered this. I was there. Um, I covered the Israeli side, of course, not the American side. But uh, I found it fascinating to hear, like, the other side of the story. Um, I'm sure that it'll be translated to English very shortly. Um, and I think that, it, you know, it gives a glimpse into a different Trump uh, that many people know and kind of look, sheds a, you know, a, a different light on uh, on what he did here in the Middle East, um, it, which has oh. negative aspects. But this book, of, this book, of course, highlights the positive aspects. And I found it um, just it has tons of great stories and scoops. So it's worth reading. 
Uh, yes, it's the book that lit U.S.-Israel Twitter, especially, but also just the U.S.-Israel debate on fire, uh, I think, right before Christmas. So that's a great, great recommendation for anyone who hasn't uh, seen or heard about that book. Uh, before we finish, uh, I'd like to thank Jacob Gilman, who produces a podcast, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, uh, including this podcast, you know who you are. And just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, be safe out there. Happy New Year. Tal, Happy New Year. And thank you so much. Happy New Year.